Let's transition to the text, looking at 2 Samuel 14. Our story this morning, you know, we've been studying through Samuel, the story of Samuel. First and Second Samuel was broken into two books simply for scroll length. It's just one story called Samuel. For some time now, we're going to be finishing Samuel right before Advent. And we've come off the tail end of a horrible story of murder, manipulation, and abuse with David and Bathsheba. And we've seen that cycle continue in his son, Amnon. Amnon is infatuated with his half-sister, Tamar. And he sexually assaults her. He violates her. And this leads to this conflict in the family. And Absalom, who is Tamar's full brother, so Amnon's half-brother, is upset. And he stews on this for years before enacting his plan of vengeance. So he throws a party, and he invites all of the king's sons to come and party with him. And then he tells his servants, hey, when Amnon is merry with wine, right, he's having a good time. He's not going to be suspecting. Assassinate him. Strike him down and kill him. It's pretty bad. Yes. Appreciate the commentary. It's pretty bad. And then Absalom now, is, he flees to his maternal grandfather, so his grandfather on his mother's side, in the neighboring nation called Gesher. And that's where he's going to hang out for three years. So that kind of sets the stage. He's hiding there for three years. And we're told in 2 Samuel 13, 39, that the, the king's, the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. It's kind of unclear wording. What does that mean? Was he upset? Like, was he going to go after Absalom and kill him because that's what he should have done or she was going to forgive him? It's not positive or negative, but it seems that he's just longing to see him. <laughs> We're not told if that's negative or positive, how the response is going to be, but he's longing to see him, and that sets the stage for 2 Samuel 14. So we pick up the story, 2 Samuel 14, verse 1. <clears throat> says, now Joab knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. So Joab was the commander of the Lord's armies, and you guys know if you know someone well, you can tell when something's bothering them, right? You're a close friend. You can see if someone's bothered. When you're close to someone, you can see almost as if like you're seeing into their heart. You can see what, when something's bothering them. You can see when they can't stop thinking about something. You can tell when they've got something on their mind or they've been deeply wounded. So Joab, he sees David, he knows his heart longs out to go out to Absalom. And Joab says there is the son of Zeruiah. And according to the book of Chronicles, Zeruiah was David's sister. So Joab is David's nephew. David is Joab's uncle. There's family business. His, he loves his uncle. He wants what's best for him, it seems, or for the kingdom. So he devises this plan. He doesn't want David to be so consumed with his son that he kind of loses sight on the matters of the kingdom. So he devises this plan to bring Absalom back into the kingdom. And he enlists a wise woman, a clever woman, a cunning woman, who might accomplish what he would like. And it's going to be something indirect, right? Wisdom oftentimes is what's wise is what's kind of the best way to get there. Right? Someone who's wise and someone who's not very wise, they might have the same goal, like I want to get from point A to point B, but someone who's wise would say, what's the best way to get there? Or you're going to confront someone in a conversation, what's the best way to have the conversation with them? That's, that's wisdom. So you have this wise plan, this wise woman, they're concerned about the best way to accomplish this goal, and Joab tells her, recorded in verse 2, Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning for days for the dead. 
Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. It's a very kind of image, image invoking way of saying he tells her what to say. <laughs> the wise woman comes to the king. She falls down. She falls through her face. She pays homage. And she appeals to the compassion of the king. She says, O king, save me. She's asking for help. She tells the king, I'm a widow and my husband is dead. So there's no paternal father figure here. And I have two sons and they're quarreling in the field. And there wasn't anyone in the field that would mediate this conflict. There wasn't anyone who was going to break up the fight. And David here might be imagining two brothers fighting in a field, one kills another. He's going to imagine Cain and Abel, right? He might be picturing this imagery. So out of one, the one brother strikes the other brother and kills him. And the woman says, the the whole clan has risen up against me because according to the law, there should be justice enacted on this brother and justice required death, right? There was an eye for an eye, a life for a life, according to the Old Testament parah, the scriptures, the law. This is what Numbers 35, 19 says, the avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall be put to death. They pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him, lying in wait so that he died. Our enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died. He shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. Continuing on in verse chapter 35 of Numbers, verse 31. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer. He is guilty of death. He shall be put to death. This is what the law described. Murderers die. You kill someone, you're killed. Right? Life for life. But the wise woman says, if they put my other son to death, then I'm going to have no heir. I'm going to have no name. No one's going to follow after me. My husband's dead. My one son is already dead. If they put this son to death, there's no lineage that's going to follow. And the law also had provisions for protecting the lineage of families. So there's this conflict. She says, this would quench my coal that is left. This is image for the hope of the family. Didn't think to call one of my sons a coal, but that was the image that they used. This is the hope of my family. So the clan wants to follow the law on this issue of blood revenge, but the woman is concerned that if they kill the son, the family is no more. There's no descendant. The king said to the woman, verse eight, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman says this, on me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. Now, the woman is either at this point kind of expressing, like, I'm to blame. She's putting blame on herself. Or this is kind of a polite way of asking David, hey, let me keep talking. (laughs) Don't send me away yet. I've got something else to say. Kind of polite court language. And the king says, if anything says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. He says, verse 11, please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son may not be destroyed. Bring God into this. Use the Lord's name in this situation. Make it this kind of serious. And the king says, as the Lord lives, not a hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And so the king has given his word. He'll not be destroyed. Not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. And now with the kind of final verdict given from David, the judgment given, now she's going to say, gotcha, right? Verse 13. First, she says, please let the servant speak a word to my lord, the king. So now she's saying, hey, let me speak. And I don't know how he says it. It's like, speak or speak, right? We don't know. 
Let's just speak. One said, why have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We were like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. She's talking about the character of God here. She's saying God is merciful and compassionate. He's ready to see the banished one return home. He's provided means to do that. Verse 15. Now I've come to say this to my Lord the king because the people have made me afraid and your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant for the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my Lord the king will set me at rest for my Lord the king is like an angel of God. <laughs> She's gonna start throwing on some flattery here. That never, that never hurts, right? It's like an angel of God, discern good and evil. The Lord your God may be with you. So in other words, she's saying, hey, this conviction, this word you just gave, that was really good. So why, have, why are you not then doing it to your own son? The king said to the woman, do not hide anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my Lord the king speak. Right now he's asking her, and she's saying, yeah, speak. The king said, is the hand of Joab behind this? <laughs> David knows Joab, right? The Lord answers, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn from the right or the left from anything my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant in order to change the course of things. Your servant Joab did this. But my lord has wisdom, here we go again, like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. This woman has demonstrated her wisdom, right? She has skillfully demonstrated. She's become kind of a living parable, if you will. She's made up the story. That's analogous to David's situation. And in so doing, David has pronounced judgment on the very thing that he was doing. He has a duty to avenge the blood of Amnon, but there's a conflict concerning the heir, his son, Absalom. And it's a similar way, just a couple chapters earlier, that the prophet Nathan confronted David about his sins and the way that he was behaving, about his lust for Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. Remember the story? Prophet Nathan comes to David and he says, David, there's a rich man. The rich man has many things, many lambs. And there's a traveler that comes to town and the rich man doesn't take one of his own lambs and sacrifice it and slaughter it and prepare it for the food to be hospitable to this traveler. He goes and he takes a poor man's lamb. And this poor man just had one, the only one, the little ewe lamb. And he treated this lamb like his own family. He, he, he gave food from it from his own table. He loved it like his own family. This is how precious this little lamb was to this poor man. And the rich man takes the lamb, kills it, and gives it to the traveler. And David gets angry at this, right? It's injustice. Why would the rich man take the poor man's when he has so much of his own? And David said, as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. Remember what Nathan says? You are the man. Boom. The reveal. The same judgment that David pronounces, he uses, it's like flipped on his head. He's giving judgment against himself. She says in verse 13, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? 
For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. Stories have a way to move us, don't they? Stories have a way of getting us outside of ourself to see ourselves at times even more clearly, to see something clearly in another. Right? It would have been just as true if both the prophet Nathan and the woman or Joab came to, Nathan, came to David and said, you're in the wrong, son. Repent. That was the outcome, right? That's what they wanted. Change, dude. You're wrong. They want to confront him. But the wise thing was to use a story to, to come at him a different way, right? Stories have a powerful way of doing this. We're captured by story. One of my uh, mentoring pastors told me once that adults learn best through discovery, not dictation. And so when we discover something and we, we've discovered it, we're much more apt to receive it, to learn it, to grow from it, versus, hey, this is just the way it is. And I don't know if it's because when we're younger, you know, people are teachers and those who are older than us can tell us, and we know that we don't know a lot of things, and are, we just look up to those who are older, they know, they know so much, they're so much bigger than us, certainly they must be wiser than us. And then as we get older, we kind of think, no, I've figured some stuff out, right? We might have a little pride of, yeah, no, you can't tell me what to do. I've, I've gotten set in my ways. I know what's good and bad. Right? We, so we, we learn from discovery and through story. And some of the best teaching is done by asking the right questions. It's discovery, right? So what Jesus does. He comes on to the and he asks questions. How does Jesus teach people about the kingdom of God? He says, the kingdom of God is like. And then he tells a story, a parable, an illustration. It's going to bring new understanding. We're captured by stories. We're especially captured by underdog stories, aren't we? The poor man with one little lamb. The widow with only one son left. The underdog down seven runs in the bottom of the fifth inning. <laughs> Without a playoff appearance in 2001. Coming back to win one of the greatest comebacks in baseball playoff history. To win 10 to 9. Right, this story, the Seattle Mariners fans are going to be telling the story for a while. We'll never forget this story, right? We've been waiting 21 years for the playoffs. The stories have a way of capturing us, don't they? We can discover in stories, we're taught through stories. Unfortunately, given the deceptive nature of sin, we're oftentimes the last people to see it in ourselves. We see most readily and most easily the sin of others, <laughs> don't we? Just me? <laughs> this is why relationships like marriage create such an opportunity for conflict, <laughs> don't they? A close family member? Relationship where you live with one another. You're seeing someone's sins oftentimes more clearly because you are the recipient of the sin. You are the person that they've sinned against. You feel it. In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller says, if, if two people come into a relationship saying, my self-centeredness is the greatest problem in this relationship, then you have a good place to start. That's the, the way of humility and love, isn't it? Oftentimes what happens though is we say, well, this relationship would be a whole lot better if you would change. Most of our problems in the relationship are really your fault. That's even how we can apologize for things. We use if, and, or but language, right? For a relationship we are blinded by our own pride, we think they're the biggest problem. It's a recipe for disaster. The story is powerful. It captures 
David. He sees his mistakes in the story. And it works. The plan works. The king calls to Joab, says, okay, go get this son of mine. Go bring back the young man, Absalom. Joab pays honor to King David. He falls on his face to the ground. And Joab goes to Gesher and brings Absalom back to Jerusalem. But look at verse 24. King said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He may not, he is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now, it seems kind of like a strange aside to us as we continue in the next story, because then it starts talking about how good looking Absalom is. <laughs> what does that have anything to do with the story? And it's preparing us for what's going to happen next. It's very ironic, especially about the hair. You'll see that in a couple weeks. But there's similar descriptions given to Absalom like were given to King Saul. So he was sent on the reader of, oop, not good. <laughs> when the narrator is focusing so much about someone's physical appearance, I didn't go so well for the last guy. What do they say? No one was praised so much as handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, no blemish. Good looking guy. He cut his hair once a year. His hair was so thick. 200 shekels was weighty. That might have been listed because Absalom just liked to weigh his hair. I mean, he was so vain about how thick it was, which as a guy who's balding, I'm thinking, yeah, that'd be nice. In my studies this week, they, they talked about how in those days, people thought someone with thick hair was like someone with power and strength. It's totally not the case today, right? <laughs> but we're told Absalom, he had three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. He probably named his daughter after in honor of his sister, Tamar. And then we come out of that side, side tangent. Okay, we're done talking about how good looking at Absalom is. Let's get back to the story. Verse 28. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Now remember, Absalom has been in Gesher three years. And he was in Gesher three years before Joab came and took Absalom and brought him back to Jerusalem. And then he was there another two years. So it's been five years since Absalom and David have talked. Good things usually don't happen in those kind of relationships where things fester. There's a deep wound that's happened. Five years since he's seen or talked with his dad. Then Joab, Absalom sent for Joab. Send me to the king. I want to talk with my dad. Send me to the king. But Joab didn't listen. Sent a second time, Joab didn't come. So what does someone do when they don't feel heard? Result of violence. Be a toddler, doesn't feel heard, they're going to throw a tantrum. They're going to start hitting things. When groups of people don't feel heard, they can resort to violence. They can riot. Joab's not going to listen to me. (laughs) I'm going to set his field on fire. They don't talk to me. That'll cause them to talk. Job arose and went to Absalom to his house. Why have you set my field on fire? <laughs> Absalom answered, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king and ask, Why have I come to Gesher? Like, why did I come here? It'd be better off if I was just left there. I'm sitting this in between. I'm not forgiven, but if I have guilt on me, the king should just kill me. So he says, Let me go into the presence of the king, and if there's guilt in me, let him put me to death. I'm tired of this waiting, this in between. I'm either forgiven or I'm going to be killed. I got to know. 
So Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. It seems to me that this kiss is not full rest, restoration, reconciliation, because of what happens in the next chapter. It seems to me this kiss was a, simply a political gesture. And it's heartbreaking in the story to see someone who has received such forgiveness, like David, someone who lied and committed adultery and murdered and tried to manipulate. And he is withholding forgiveness to his son. He doesn't go after Absalom. He has to be manipulated into it. Once, once he comes, he says, I don't, don't bring him into my presence. And Absalom has to try to, he has to set Joab's field on fire just to talk with his dad. And then his dad gives him a kiss. Jesus told a parable to his disciples, a parable about forgiveness and how forgiveness is to work in the lives of those who have received forgiveness. He tells a parable that says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. There's a king who wanted to settle his accounts. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and that all that he had be sold to repay the debt. But at this, the servant falls on his knees. He falls before him and he says, have mercy on me. Be patient with me and I will pay back everything. And the master's servant had pity on him. He canceled the debt and let him go. All right, 10,000 bags of gold. His fellow servant, so the servant of this servant, found out that, that he owed him 100 silver coins. So the difference is vast in debt. And he grabs him and he begins to choke him. And he says, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And the servant of this servant says, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But the servant refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw that what happened, they were outraged. And then they told his master everything that happened. Now this master's going, what? 10,000 bags of gold I canceled and a little bit of silver you can't? Shouldn't you have shown mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you, he says. In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he had paid back all that he owed. And Jesus says this, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So Jesus is saying the sign that you have understood the forgiveness of God is in your willingness to forgive others. And in your demonstration of unwillingness to forgive others, you are demonstrating the fact that you don't understand, you don't appreciate, you really haven't experienced the forgiveness of God. You guys with me? The prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples says, forgive us our trespasses, we are praying to God, as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. That's the relationship. It's heartbreaking that David has been forgiven of these sins. He doesn't want to show forgiveness to his son. Listen to what Absalom is saying. This lack of action is killing me. Either punish me if there's guilt in me, let me put me to death, but if not, forgive me. Why have I come to Gesher? It would be better for me to be there still, he says. It's better not to live in the face of unforgiveness and coldness and distance, Absalom's saying, than to come back in Jerusalem and yet I can't come into the presence of the king. And David seems like he kind of oscillates in doing the wrong thing twice. His kind of inactivity. Doesn't act justice. He doesn't bring about reconciliation, true forgiveness, or he doesn't bring about justice like he should. 
And even the king's kiss seems to be more of a political gesture than true reconciliation. R.C. Sproul says it like this, the narrative ends abruptly. Though King David's action is sometimes referred to as the kiss of reconciliation, it is doubtful that a real reconciliation is effected. Ironically, by giving kisses to those who approach him with petitions, Absalom will soon steal away the hearts of the people and launch a rebellion against his father. So it doesn't seem to be true reconciliation because we'll see next chapter, Absalom starts conspiracy. He starts revolt. He tries to overthrow his dad as king, which doesn't seem like they reconciled, right? <laughs> right? Okay. So what's the moral of the story? If you want to change someone's mind, you got to hire a wise woman, right? <laughs> That could be a sermon, right? <laughs> if you want your friends to listen to you, burn their fields. <laughs> no, right? I think when we see this story, it's a heartbreaking story of division and rift in family, kingdom falling apart. And I think when we see the story of David and Absalom, we, we get a clear understanding of just how different and amazing the forgiveness of God is to us. Jesus, he tells a parable. It's related to the heart of God for sinners. And he said, there's his father. He had two sons. The younger son asked for his portion of the inheritance. Early. Very disrespectful to the father. And he goes off and he spends it on his selfish pursuits. Prostitutes and whatever he can do to try to live the good life. And he finds himself eating pig's food. And he comes to the realization of, I mean, even being a servant in my father's house would be better than this. <laughs> if I could just be a servant in his house. Even though I've treated my father so poorly, I've spoiled the inheritance, I've treated my father with contempt, I've been very disrespectful, I've rebelled against my father. I want to return to him. And even if I could be a measly little servant, I'd be better than this. So he comes back to the father, and the father sees him from a distance and runs to him. And he kisses him, and he hugs him, and he, he puts his robe on him, and he throws him a party. He says, my son who was lost is now found. My dead son is back to life. He doesn't just kiss the son. He doesn't just welcome him back to his presence and say, oh yeah, I'm still pissed at you. You're not going to get anything else. You, you got your inheritance, you get nothing else. You can live as a measly little servant. Get, get away from my presence, though. It's like, no, he's welcome back in. This lavish welcome. And this is how God relates to us, amen? amen? When we have been the rebellious son like Absalom, when we have rebelled against God's law, we have run from him and fleed his presence, he comes after us. When we repent, we turn back to him, the father runs to us and welcomes us. He doesn't say, it doesn't have to be manipulated. <laughs> like the Holy Spirit came up to the father and said, oh man, have you guys considered the humanity? I mean, you created them. I'm going to try to manipulate the father to, to bring them back. No, the father doesn't say, yeah, humanity, you can come back and I, I won't kill you, but I don't want anything to do with you. God welcomes us into his family, loves us, lavish grace upon us. He doesn't leave us in cold uncertainty about what his heart is for us. 
It is a heart of love, forgiveness, acceptance, welcome, reconciliation, redemption. You don't earn it back. It's freely given by grace. We receive it by faith. And he welcomes us into his presence by punishing his own son in our place. Even though we are the Absaloms, the innocent son, the good son, the perfect son is punished for the rebellious sons like me, like Absalom. And he offers full and complete forgiveness, restoration. This is, this is the heart of the father towards us. So David kind of, and by way of failure, <laughs> points to Jesus. Amen? And when we see that we, like Absalom, have sinned, that there has been no one else that we have sinned to to the extent of and to the degree of God. And he forgives us. Forgiveness is possible. That empowers forgiveness. The root of bitterness is the thought, I could never do that. The way someone sinned against me, I could never do that. That's how we hold on to bitterness. That's at the root of bitterness. It's just pride. And in humility, we say, I haven't sinned against anyone more than against Jesus. And yet he welcomes me and loves me. I can forgive anyone. It's not a cheap forgiveness. It's not, but there can be a forgiveness of the heart. This is, this is an opportunity to express the same forgiveness that we've shown, that we've received. We can show that to others. So church, as we see this story, it's a heartbreaking story and it's going to continue to get more heartbreaking as the family unravels in David's line. As David was probably looking forward to who is the one that was promised to me, this offspring of mine that's going to bring about an eternal kingdom, a forever kingdom, a kingdom of justice. There's not going to be any more violence. It's looking forward to that in the story. And it just gets worse with Absalom and the rest of David's sons. But we see ultimately this Samuel and the storyline of the Bible points forward to our need for King Jesus. And Jesus does not treat us like David treats Absalom. And Jesus does not fail us like David failed his sons. And Jesus does not stay inactive and indecisive like Jesus did. Justice was not kind of not done and forgiveness was not offered. It's both and justice enacted, forgiveness offered all in Jesus. And to that we say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that we have seen this story that points us to how good and merciful and loving you are. So church, may we love and forgive as we have been forgived and loved. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, all throughout the storyline of the Bible, we see evidences of the destructive nature of a heart set on self. We're prideful. We want revenge. We hold on to bitterness. We don't forgive. It doesn't lead to healthy, flourishing relationships. And yet, Father, you, you came into this chaos. You came into this brokenness. You came into the world marred by sin, and you demonstrated, and you lived the good, perfect life. And you, you didn't cast sinners away from your presence. You moved towards them. Jesus was called a friend of sinners. People didn't touch Jesus and become unclean. He touched them and they became clean. 
So we thank you, Jesus, that when we were rebelling against you, when we were sinning, when we were hiding from you, you came after us. While we were far away, you came running and embraced us. Lord, I don't, I have a hard time believing that because I've sinned against others. I've sinned against people who are close to me. I've sinned against Stephanie so much. And I know the alienation that sin causes. I know the shame that that feels. It's hard for me to believe that sinning so much against someone, they can still want me and love me. Father, thank you for the gift of this church and and the gift of my wife and the gift of friends who have offered forgiveness to me and they have taught me what it is like to be forgiven by you. Would you do that in this church, Father? We're gonna sin against each other. We're not perfect yet. We forget who we are. We try to uphold image. Father, I pray that people might have a greater sense of the forgiveness of God because they know people in this church and they've experienced forgiveness from each other. Father, by your Holy Spirit, would you cause us to experience this forgiveness in a fresh way today? Would we not forget the story that we heard about this morning? Would you not forget about the forgiveness you've given us? Freely we have received, freely we will give. We have received without pay, there where we can give. Father, would you help us to understand more of your heart and would you help us to help each other understand that more? We don't have to hide. We don't have to try to muster our goodness up. We don't have to make ourselves presentable enough to you. You are approachable. You invite us. You call us that you are gentle and lowly. And you welcome us. Help us to welcome others as you have welcomed us. We pray this in your name. Amen.